Welcome to Mint, a unique look into how the creators of today are building the communities of tomorrow by harnessing the power of Web3. I'm your host, Adam Levy, and let's kick off this episode by giving some love to our five NFT sponsors. They are Coinvise, Poop, Cello, Social Stack, and PrimeDAO. First off, on Coinvise, you can create a personal or community-owned social token on Ethereum. Coinvise also helps you create incentives through token rewards and bounties, NFT business models, and bot integrations for Discord. Discover more by visiting coinvise.co today. Next up, we have POAP, or short for Proof of Attendance Protocol, who enables a novel way of creating one's life diary. Leveraging NFT technology, POAP facilitates an easy way to mint non-fungible tokens related to meaningful events. It's frequently used in crypto-native communities, and now it's starting to create NFT collectors in the mainstream too. Collect or launch your own POAP today by visiting poap.xyz. Next up, we have Social Stack a platform for communities, brands, and creators to build mission-driven social token economies, offering an easy-to-use non-custodial wallet with a suite of open-source community engagement tools. Social Stack makes it simple to bring your community into Web3 and be a part of creating an open-source, gratitude-driven future for social tokens. Create a free social token wallet, discover mission-driven social token communities, or apply to launch your own token on Social Stack by visiting socialstack.co today. Next up, we have Celo. Are you looking for an ecosystem of dApps, currencies, and tokens that can connect you with people no matter their device, carrier, or country? Well, say hello to Celo, a mobile-first platform that makes crypto dApps and payments accessible to anyone with a mobile phone. Celo supports thousands of projects from builders, developers, and artists who everyday build applications and issue tokens from all over the world. Visit celo.org today to learn more. And last but not least, we have PrimeDAO, a collective of DeFi builders and DAO veterans attempting to turn DeFi into a more cooperative ecosystem by creating DAO-to-DAO interactions. The first solution to go live is PrimeLaunch, a launchpad experience for DAOs built in collaboration with Balancer. If you plan on launching a DAO, head over to prime.xyz to access a network of partners and tools that will jumpstart your DAO development today. This episode welcomes Peter Pan, a down NFT thought leader whose work is widely known across the early stage token investment firm 1KX. He's also a community organizer and summoner at MetaCartel as well as a co-founder in Blood Mage at Metacartel Ventures. In this episode, we talk about 1KX's investment thesis, understanding the role of leadership in DAOs, how to eliminate or prevent bad actors in DAOs, strategies for growing decentralized communities, his point of view on JPEG summer, his NFT investment strategy, what will eat Web3, and so much more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Let's get into it right now. Uh, give me a quick brief about yourself. Uh, who are you and kind of what were you doing before crypto? Yeah, I'm currently at 1KX, investing in early stage token networks. Uh, yeah, we invest across all of um, DeFi, NFTs, social tokens, really with this thesis that, you know, the key innovation of crypto is really with this idea that you can like take large scale technology networks and uh, distribute the ownership of those, right? Um, yeah, and, and you know, we sort of invested really early in each sort of area. So we're not really like, a general, we're not a DeFi fund, we're not an NFT fund, really. See our core competency spread across everything. Um, yeah, mostly like, you know, leading series, uh, like seed 
seed deals and Series A uh, rounds right now. Uh, last couple of years, mostly, I guess, worked on DAOs, most, no most notably uh, creating sort of metacons of DAO and sort of, uh, you know, helping foster the DAO ecosystem of DAOs that sort of emerged from that. Uh, created uh, venture DAO or metacultural ventures that first investment down in Ethereum, really questioning like can groups of people like invest together. Um, yeah, before crypto was really just like a designer doing product design, UX design, and user research, just like, talking to users. Um, yeah, that's really um, what I've been up to, I guess. <laughs> yeah. What do you remember the first crypto you bought? Yeah, I bought like ETH or something. Um, you... Or technically, I never. The first crypto I ever touched was like in 2012 or 13, where I was like collecting Bitcoin from Bitcoin faucets, like barely like, <laughs> like I had it in, a, I had it stuff the wallet and it's like got $70 of Bitcoin in it. Right. But it was like cents back then. And I was got just it. playing with it, you know. Like it. What year, what year was that? Do you remember? Like 2012, 13. Wow. Super. So, yeah, I, I, I sort of, yeah, like I, I was aware of it, but I didn't really like see too much. It was like, this is just like instant money that might yeah. be a scam. Yeah, you're um, just like, I'll just collect some of this right now. Like, why not? <laughs> What's yeah, the... you know, just click on some ads, you know. Like, <laughs> I did that for like a couple of days and I got bored of it. Forgot about it. Got it. Okay, I want to pivot into the discussion around DAOs, okay? Obviously, that's one of your core competencies. You're very vocal about that on Twitter. Uh, and I want to just dive in. Where does your obsession with DAOs stem from? Did you have like a bad work experience like at a corporation? You're like fuck this shit, we need to do it differently. Like, how did your, like, where did this excitement for, for decentralized organizations come from? Yeah, honestly, I don't, like, uh, didn't really care too much about DAOs until, like, I wanted to join Moloch DAO and I was, like, rejected from joining it. Um, so for those who don't know, so Moloch is, like, the first of a real DAO on Ethereum. Like, there was the DAO, uh, which was, like, in, uh, created in 2016, 15, and uh, it was sort of hacked right. And it, it didn't really exist anymore. But um, Moloch DAO was really um, the DAO that that really like in, uh, was born in 12, early 2019, and uh, yeah, like created a lot of the DAO movement there. Got um, it. Try to join it. It was sort of like a mini, mini like elite club of ETH insiders. I, I guess rich ETH insiders, you know, who are sort of a bit popular. And uh, I wanted to join the experiment, but uh, yeah, and I didn't really think too much of it until. Yeah, I ultimately was not uh, allowed to let in. Why? Why didn't they let you in? Do you know why? Because uh, I was poor and no one knew who I was. So uh, there you go. Like basically, a lot of the you know being highly you know a lot of sarcastic, but just like I mean, it was funny. Like you know, a lot of the pledges were really from ETH whales, like a hundred ETH pledges at the time. Back then, it was only twenty grand, right? But it still was like quite a lot of money compared to someone who was like pretty much broke at that time. Yeah. Uh, I had like maybe like I don't know I maybe had like 20 30 ETH and I was like okay I'm gonna try pledge like a third of like my savings on ETH into like this random job just to learn right yeah. um yeah and just aside from a meme like no one really knew who I was and it was just too little of a money just like, rejected me like a charity down you know yeah. um so I mean and I had this chat afterwards it was like why don't you for create your own DAO fork Moloch and I'm like That'd be hilarious. And first of the adventure began. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> so what 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 year was that? What year did you fork? 2019. Like 2019. After it was created, yeah. Okay. And what's what's the current state of the DAO that you forked? Where is it now? How many members? What do you guys do? Give me the rundown. Yeah, I mean, we created uh Medicalsal DAO, the first fork of Moloch, launched in like, you know, mid to early 2019 then. 
we created the first out of that we gave grants and experimented DAOs. Created the first ever you know service guild, like like DAO that was a that provided services, which is like DevShop and Design Work, which is like Code Raid Guild. We created the first ever investment uh, you know DAO on Ethereum, uh, MetaCostal Ventures. We created some of the first experimentations on like decentralized brand economy, like decentralized brand DAOs with MetaFactory, originally called Swag DAO. Um, and we yeah we worked on like decentralized reputation systems like we worked on the first ever like part DAO that was like supposed to like coordinate our parties in real life it was actually supposed to be about sponsoring events but just quickly devolved into like let's like throw whiskey parties with this uh you know and that was called RG DAO created by Makoto from Kickback um so I would say like back then it was just like a group of like um I wouldn't be able to say how many people it yeah of like yeah. DAO, over 100 easily and a part of the ecosystem, probably like, uh, yeah, probably like two, three hundred people, like totally across the medical or DAO ecosystem, if not more. Uh, and it was just like a bunch of people who like wanted to experiment with DAOs like back then. And this was the community where we hang out or we hung out, right? Um, and hindsight, it was just like a really nice time where like, you know, nothing was worth anything. You know, no, you know, was making money. It was just like pure experimentation for the sake of it, and. Yeah, I think like we've grown like really close as a community since then. You know, there's something special about decentralized organizations beyond that they just live on the internet. The most special part about these DAOs, and this is just from my own experience at Friends with Benefits, for example, is, all right, you're in this huge group chat with thousands of people, each respectively in their own city, each respectively have their own craft. And you don't know who anybody is until there's like an IRL event, an an in-person event. And then you're like, oh, you're that guy. Oh, you're that guy. And there's something beautiful about being able to connect from a uh, URL standpoint to an IRL standpoint. And it's something that I have yet to experience with another, I guess, traditional organization because everybody's collectively building towards one mission in a a new fashion. But when you get to scale, when you get to this thought of, uh, I guess, organization, how do you think about leadership in a DAO? Because my experience with DAOs and starting DAOs in the past is that everybody's really required to be very self-disciplined, uh, independent, organized, and like an alpha basically, right? And, and take projects upon themselves. Like, how does that, how do you think about that? When you were starting your DAO, how did you approach leadership? Did you run into problems in the beginning? Uh, walk me through that. Yeah, I mean, the whole uh, pattern uh, was just like create more leaders. Um, yeah, uh, I think like, my mental model was just like, yeah, get more people to start things and, and champion them and give them more responsibility, you know, um, and give people responsibility that they usually would not uh, be given perhaps, right? And that's sort of like why, you know, as part of Metacultural's values, one of them is like bet on uh, each other or bet on others, right, in the community. Um, that was a heuristic that really led to, I think, like, or at least a set of values that really led to like this proliferation of all of these DAOs because like when someone was thinking about like, can I, should I create a DAO to like, you know, um, create a pretty decentralized like brand, uh, brands, you know, uh, or like create a DAO for, for like, you know, I don't know, services. We were basically all in unison, like, uh, yeah, let's do it, you know, and we pushed uh, p- the people behind them to go and experiment. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that was a big part of it. We just like did things, we supported each other, we really pushed like uh, this like uh, culture of like experimenting and just doing, right? I think a lot of people are just talking about things and building infrastructure where we really wanted to just like run and gun. Yeah. Yeah. When you, when you think, I guess, of, of organizational structure, what are like the core hats that need to be worn uh, when initially starting a DAO? 
Um, yeah, you need um, leadership as in like, there needs to be, uh, it's about sort of like, uh, I guess you need a chef in the kitchen who's like really directing everyone uh, who maybe own other responsibilities, right? Like in a kitchen, you have like the head chef, they manage the menu, they produce the menu, right? And, but like there's line cooks, there's sous chefs, right? Uh, which like have responsibility over like this, uh, working on several of the dishes or key areas of the menu, right? So, you know, different people may own different pieces of responsibility, but you always need a central coordinator uh, around that, right? And usually what happens is like, you know, when uh, usually how these things scale is that, um, at least how we scaled is just like, uh, I, I, you know, me, uh, I was coordinating a lot of it until a group of people uh, who like took over and that was known as like the paladins, right? We set up like different roles within the DAO and then the paladins ran operations and that group took over. And then, you know, with each separate DAO, it was just like, you know, pushing people to like into coordination roles. And then they sort of like usually, uh, you know, they usually set the tone of like, what is, what is a DAO uh, collecting resources, uh, setting goals and tasks. And then usually once uh, they've, you know, created an initial group of people uh, running in the uh, same direction, they, you sort of then want to basically set up processes and systems to decentralize that central point of coordination, right? But to bootstrap any sort of down community, I really do think you need that like central, uh, you know, warlord effectively or summoner, right, of a DAO yeah. um, to just drive things forward. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, you just want to be pragmatic. That's a, I mean, like centralized coordination is effective and efficient. It's fast, right? Um, and I think you should definitely like rely on it when you can, because when you're big enough, you can't, can't really, you know, run in the same way and operate in the same way. So I think you want to make the most of those early days to really like, because early on, you have like all this autonomy to craft and curate things as you, you can, you know, at least as I saw, like I saw the early stage of medical highly important of like who was involved, who I wanted to bring in, who right. we wanted to bring in. And it was, we could do it very surgically as it grew less so. And today, like I'm meeting people uh, who are part of the medical ecosystem who are like, I've never been met before, but like a part of radio. And it sort of works because each group that's spun out like uh, has sort of maintained the overarching metacultural culture, even though DAOs are doing wildly different things, right? And um, and and it's definitely a lot less curated, but that's sort of how the DAO, I think DAOs really get become curated later on. It's just, or coordinated, it's like just the fractalization, right? And yeah. you just, you're the one who, you know, as a coordinator in the beginning, you're the one who I think like sets a tone of like, uh, creates like the, the DNA, right? Mm -hmm. The double helix in which mm -hmm. spawns everything else, right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I love your analogy for the, the restaurant example. It's the first example that I've actually heard be used in that type of way. One, I think it's a very digestible way to understand these. And as creators and more of these Web3 communities spur, you know, like they're, they're going to be looking for resources and, and examples to bridge their organizations from. So perfect example, you have your line cook, right? You have your head chef, you have all these different components managing the kitchen. But I guess the next question is, so you have all these people in this organization, everyone's collectively building. How do you think about reputation? And I know there's different models to kind of assign reputation in terms of points rather than uh, wealth, for example, right? Because it's one of the biggest discussions around DAOs. If you have more money, you have more power. And we kind of want to frame from that, or at least some groups do. How do you think about rep with all of your experience managing and starting DAOs? Yeah. Um, reputation. Uh Reputation, I guess it like allows you to uh, trust others a lot easily, a lot more, right? It's basically um, like, I guess, social like coordination duct tape, right? Uh, a lot of it exists like without really it being formalized. Like a lot of the early stages, 
uh, like early on for a lot of DAOs, it's like I think whoever's coordinating is really just like a central ledger book of like reputation for each of its coordinate uh, each of its like contributing members, right? Um, and as you go over over time, like you sort of, I definitely think it makes sense of like set up some sort of reputation system uh, to account for like who did what, because as you grow as a group, you can't really, you know, I guess it's like sort of like Dunbar's number, right? You like you don't know who's who anymore, right? It's harder to keep track of that, at least mentally. Um, yeah, and and for I think for medical hotel, we never really uh, went past that stage yet. Like we we still heavily rely on like individual key like community members to like vet for people and like re you know sort of um, I guess vouch for uh, new members and, and new projects, right? Uh, definitely see a lot of other communities that need sort of more formalized reputation systems, but for us, we're just growing fairly slowly. And yeah, uh, yeah we're not we're not a we're, we're like what is Metacultural today? Um, it's more like a group of DAOs that are focused on the, uh, each, each of their own goals and who's in Metacultural is more like a curated list of who we trust, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it makes sense. And all these people that you trust, have you met all of them or these are just all internet characters that have kind of got referrals from other people that you've trusted? Or that you've trusted? Yeah, I, I've mostly met all of them over the last three, four years. Got it. Cool. Um, um, initially, we initially it was like just people uh, who aggregated online, online first and offline. Right. Yeah. It's like um, that's definitely a cool pattern. Yeah. No, for sure. One thing that's so beautiful to watch about DAOs is it only takes really, you could say one person, but really two, three people to kind of align on, on an idea, pull some capital, right? That's controlled by multiple people. And then inspire other people with that vision and that mission of what you're trying to create and hopefully align them, right? And you guys are at a point where you've obviously, you're really established, you're really advanced, you have your systems in place, I, I'm assuming, right? I'm not, I'm not in those organizations particularly, but just for example, seeing how these events, that's going to happen in Denver soon. So shout out to MCON, that's happening uh, September 15th, right? Just to see that process come together and that coordination is really cool, right? And a lot of people, they don't know each other. People are just excited to jump in and participate and contribute. That's the beauty behind crypto. That's the beauty behind DAOs. But when you're starting these organizations, okay, and let's take this from a creator's point of view, for example, when you're starting these, and I, I think some creators will call them like modern day fan clubs and try to align their, their rally, their communities and their fan bases to kind of partake more in their journey, or at least more of their active fans. When you're starting these DAOs, how do you think about uh, community building? And I only asked this question because you wrote an awesome article back in June on titled How to Grow Decentralized Communities. And for anybody that's listening or watching, I'll leave the link in the show notes. But I want you to kind of walk me through that because it was a very detailed article. And I'm, I'll pull up a graph that you, you put together. And I'd love to kind of like pick that apart with you for a minute. There is no uh, like recipe for uh, the process of community building for DAOs. Like it depends, and it depends entirely what the DAO is for, right? What the goals of a DAO are. So like you can go from DeFi, like DAOs that own like DeFi protocols to all the way to like, you know, uh, DAOs that basically manage treasuries and funding, right? Like, um, uh, you know, or, or DAOs that are purposely, you know, are focused on services, DAOs that purposely focus on social curation as a social club, right? And so the process in which you like basically launch a DAO entirely depends on like what the uh, DAO is doing, what its purposes are, how it's, you know, evolving from, is it starting from ground zero? Is it starting from an existing product or a set of assets, right? Like, it really depends where you're coming from. So, um, and if we each of these sort of uh, veins, right, and archetypes of DAOs, you know, uh, the sort of patterns of, uh, of that emerge with like, how do you bootstrap them? How do you 
launch uh, these token networks around them. It entirely depends on like the goals and sort of the state right. of each. Chapter. Sure. But I, I still think there's some beauty behind the chart that you put together and, and I'll show it just for the sake of those who are watching. Sure. If you're not watching and you're listening, go, go check it out in the show notes. But I, I think there's some like systematic approach into how you structured this graph, because I think it's super applicable for a lot of DAOs. Okay. That's why I want to bring it up. So the article is sure. titled, uh, how to grow decentralized communities and you go into a few paragraphs about giving some briefs and then you dive into this awesome graph titled the community building process for token networks. And I'll zoom in here. Okay. And it starts with t uh, three tiers, one, two, and three narrowing down into a funnel. The first one is attracting potential community participants. The second one is getting community members engaged. And number three is consolidating community ownership. Okay. I'd love for you to kind of walk me through those three tiers and, and share your insight as to what you kind of meant for e each of those pieces. Right, definitely. I guess this would be a much more of a like abstract. It was like a mental model, right? Which I wanted to share, which is, you know, um, to really like create like um, a community of stakeholders that actually really care about the project and participate in governance, participate in the network. Uh, you know, like how in in all sorts of ways, right? Like effectively, you need to. It's all about sort of fostering like to create a great community. You sort of have to foster a sense of ownership. And so ownership is like what drives governance participation uh, outside of monetary incentives. It drives, you know, like product feedback. It drives, you know, hiring. It drives uh, working group contributions. Um, you know, it drives all these areas of like um, a DAO or decentralized organization that you sort of need to like fill, right? And it's very hard to sort of manually like, you know, address, uh, I guess, you know, like, find community members, uh, you know, unless you are able to like bootstrap this like ownership, right? And how do you get to ownership? You have to build a relationship. And before you even are able to build a relationship, you have to attract and like communicate and, you know, like find potential community members that resonate or like a, a fit for the community itself, right? So it was really just going backwards of like, how do we foster ownership? How do we get to the position to foster ownership? And then how do you know, it's really like, uh, yeah, how do we attract the right people? Um, and I think that roughly when we're thinking about like, uh, yeah, when we're roughly thinking about like the whole process of like building a community, like getting to an end state where there is like a cloud, uh, like a group of people, at least how I define community is really a group of people who are collaborating one-on-one -on -one in a many-to-many -many fashion on a shared set of, uh, goals and, you know, uh, under, with a set of values. Right. Um, and you know, to get to that place, it's like, this is sort of roughly the process you have to mm -hmm. get both regardless of what you're building effectively. And it is a bit abstract in the sense of like, it's just ownership, but yeah, for, for each and every network, I, you know, recently, uh, I would even tweak this a bit. And one realization recently is, was that, you know, some communities might actually want to maximize, uh, you know, community participation, right. Uh, some communities might actually want to minimize uh, community participation in the net token network itself, right? Like governance minimization to some extent. Right. And different communities can leverage uh, network participation in different ways, right? For some, it's uh, used to de-risk platform risk, right? Uh, for some others, it's used to crowdsource, right? Like participating in the network means crowdsourcing, like the crowdsourcing of ideas uh, or projects or in this, in, in the case of say index co-op, right? like the launching of the, like the development of uh, ind index products, right? Like they might want to maximize that, right? Um, so like it 
yeah, you know, like as we sort of, you know, uh, better understand what are the different types of token networks, you know, it's such just sort of there's sort of these themes that like, you know, emerge, right? So it's not always so black and white of like we want to build maybe the biggest community. We I think it's really about like identifying like who are the stakeholders that matter uh, for the end success of the network, right? Um, or project and then going from that and then just then building out like these sort of uh, funnels effectively that like bring people through right. uh, to become a community member. Yeah. yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And I guess let's do this really quick. I'm messing around with the views here. And consolidating community ownership is one of the most exciting components for me is simply because, well, you're getting the people that love what you do involved beyond them just using or or interacting. Now they have a stake, they have a say. Now they feel more aligned because they have skin in the game, right? And there's power to that. And you weren't really able to do that before in a more, I, I guess, emotional manner. Like when you buy a stock, for example, sure, you technically legally have ownership, but you're not in the boardrooms like contributing, you know, you're just listening through Robin Hood's uh, voice app, you know, you're not, you're not an active member in, in Apple's calls or Apple's decision-making here. Your voice can be heard because it can be traced. It can be tracked. You can see how many tokens you own. You can view and, and kind of track and I guess, yeah, I guess just see your engagement and your level of activity in, in these groups. Uh, and as you know, DAOs are, are already picking up a ton of traction online across crypto Twitter and beyond. And I think companies are starting to kind of get FOMO. It's like, okay, how can I use this DAO model and integrate it in my product management and build a community or build a product around my community versus build a community? You know what I mean? Like, how, how do I integrate these models and build in public without giving away too much too early? Right. So let, let's give an example. OK, so let's say you're building a, a consumer app or a web app. Right. And you want to kind of take the components of, of DAOs in terms of how communities are involved in their ownership. But you don't want to give up too much, I guess, governance rights to these individuals. You want to keep the core team, the, the core product and its team, you know, like somewhat centralized, but still build in production. Is there a way to mix the two? Like, can, like how would that work? Like, how do you form a DAO without giving up all of the governance rights, you know, and bringing and exposing yourself completely? Like, how do you keep it focused and narrowed and then expand gradually? How does that work? Well, what is the DAO's point, like goal and end goal in general? You sort of have to go from there. And all your decisions revolve around like compromises. Uh, so like, I wouldn't even start with that question. It's like, you know, um, it's not about holding on to like, Yes, you want to early stage uh, when you're building a product that wants to be decentralized. Early, you know, early on, you want to have a lot more control over it, right? Especially when you need to curate the uh, community participation, build it out, make quick decisions, move fast, right? Um, but yeah, like you know, um, what different projects have different levels of decentralization, where they give away different levels of ownership away to the community. Mm -hmm. This is all dependent, right, on like what your end goals are. Yeah, like uh, if you're trying to build like a. a like hundred billion dollar financial primitive, right? Where you know you want like nation states to trust you. Yeah, you probably like want to give more than like, you know, uh, you probably want to have a fairly decentralized network, <laughs> right? Uh, where um, you know, like, but if you're really building um, an application where you want community like participation to some extent, you want community to find upside in the project. Um, you wanna you wanna have you wanna decide like a network ownership that helps you get to the end state that you want to go for. And for some project, it's going to be, uh, you know, uh, they might give away, like, say, 30% of the tokens to communities. Some might give away 50. 
And the beautiful thing is that um, projects are going to compete uh, for the same customers, right, with their own network. So, and, and if you're end consumer, like picking two products, like you, or you pick the product that gives you like, uh, I don't know, I feel like, you, you know, we pick the product that gives you less tokens or the one with more tokens or more ownership, right? And it depends, like, whether which product's better, you know, yeah. which product or community do you resonate the most with? Maybe it's the same all around, and you just want the one that actually cares about, uh, you know, the users or yourself the most, right? Yeah. It really depends. So, like, this is a fluctuating sort of, like, parameter that, you know, yeah. you want to find, you know, there's no right answer to it. Yeah, you know, I only bring that question up because I personally got super inspired by uh, YFI's community and uh, specifically Andre Cornier, right, and how he tests in production and how he's super vocal about all of his development. And he just lets everybody, you know, just, like, see what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing play at your own risk. And also what Friends with Benefits is doing now with their, their fundraise, you know, they're, they're getting investment from strategic partners and it's a really community effort to bring that capital in. It's not just like the few core contributors that started FWB, like, no guys, we're like, we're gonna, we're gonna get money because we need to pay people full time. Let's take it from this a community point of view where, okay, we wanna build this community. We wanna build products around our community to empower everyone and start a business here, whatever. But you guys are a core component of that. So. I think it's just interesting how these like communities are kind of fit, shaping uh, currently and how they're encouraging more community involvement. Um, one thing I want to kind of pivot to is uh, you obviously with, with having these token prices publicly traded, anybody can access and buy them. Um, you want to try to build a community that encourages participation versus speculation, right? And the reality is, is whether these creators are launching tokens, whether it's Web3 organizations, products, whatever it may be, the reality is, is I guess one of the biggest problems people have is like, how do you instill a sense of ownership within a community that transcends beyond the purpose of the token, right? So how do you encourage people not to just speculate, but to contribute? Have you thought about that? Have you figured out yeah, ways to uh, kind of most- approach that? Yeah, most most projects launch a token with incentives and then try to use incentives to attract participation, whereas you're supposed to actually really, uh, you know, uh, find uh, contributors or community members and then like, you know, really like, you know, uh, like, I guess, like find a middle ground between the intrinsic and extrinsic for them to uh, participate. So you're going to start a participation and then reward that, right? Uh, It's like most projects. Yeah, you just get uh, tokens that are just like, you know, sold and like farmed and dumped and just like, you know, it becomes a fairly transactional environment. So, um, yeah, like when we work with to- projects at 1KX, it's really just like the the methodology, at least approach that we take is really, you want to build a community first, right? Find community participation or network participation. And then once you understand what the network looks like, uh, how you we, we will likely design it, who are the most important stakeholders, it's really then designing like a distribution system or a token distribution plan that really rewards the most valuable, uh, you know, network uh, participants, right? Rather than going backwards from like incentive design, like that doesn't really work, at least from our perspective. Okay, got you. Uh, another question I have for you is as DAOs kind of like, as DAOs approach more of the mainstream world, okay? And you see more of these, again, these creators, internet personalities, Instagram influencers, whatever, building these modern day decentralized fan clubs. Is that something that excites you? Or, uh, or worries you? Like, do you think that would be good for the space or toxic for the space as you bring more of these like normies speculating on themselves and their communities? How do you feel about that? Great. Uh, yeah, whatever friction will hit, will hit it anyway. So 
the thought, you know, I think that Web3 is a democratizing power, like, you know, that uh, will empower communities, participants, but at the same time, you know, like, people are going to fall victim to, like, scams and, you know, like, uh, others taking advantage of people in a totally new paradigm, right? So I don't really think any of, like, I think it's inevitable. I think we should have, uh, you know, I, you know, approach it with, con I don't think there's a reasonable way to approach something so powerful, such as Web3, so carefully. Like, that's a very naive sort of standpoint. Like, the incident hit society like, a, like you know, a wave of bricks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, hackers were roaming the internet, like, you know, freaking, like, like phishing people, uh, you know, hacking the systems that were unsecure, people falling, you know, uh, prey. Uh, at the same time, you know, all these incident industries emerged. All these people, uh, you know, we got like online shopping, we got all these other services. Um, as much as I like to say, like, like I'm, I'm definitely excited by the emergence of like mainstream, uh, like you know, uh, adoption and actual use cases there. Um, but uh, I think it comes with the good and bad, I guess. And you know, yeah. you know, yeah, it is what it is, I guess. Yeah. Okay. I want to pivot into, I guess, my, one of my more personal favorite uh, topics, NFTs. Okay. It's obviously very much on your radar. You guys are one of the earliest investors at 1KX. Uh, I want to ask you a, a series of questions here, starting with how do you make sense of what's happening with JPEG Summer? How, how do you like wrap your head around that? Yeah, it's a good point. Um, I think that what, I mean, there's a lot of musical chairs, of course, right? But I think what is happening is that, um, yeah, like I, you know, at least one kicks is sort of thesis around NFTs is that, you know, um, we, you know, we're not like, we think art and collectibles were like a great initial beachhead for like, you know, what NFTs, uh, could be. And they were sort of like the obvious use cases, right. For NFTs, but we're much more interested in like the financialization of NFTs themselves, right? Like basically everything in the internet is an NFT. It just hasn't been sort of like, you know, introduced or minted into the web free economy. And when they do, you really need, you really actually need like, you know, protocols that unlock financial value from, yeah, the property rights of NFTs, right? So um, we're really excited about things like, you know, NiftyFi, where it's like, you can basically like, you know, take your NFT and as collateral and get a loan from that, right? Like if you're like an Instagram influencer, you can't actually go to the bank and get a loan for like the Instagram posts, right? Because it's not a real job. No one cares about it, but <laughs> in uh, the world of NFTs, like you can, you can, you can get your rocks, you know, whatever you want, you know, your, your peng is, you know, and, and you can go and like get a loan for that. And uh, you, you might get a loan for your videos that might generate revenue or even your tokenized video uh, revenue rights or your uh, articles. Right. And so I, you know, we think that that's really the future and we actually overlooked the, a lot of the profile photo, like, uh, initially in the first week, we were like, what's going on? We didn't really get it. But then we realized that I missed like the musical chairs and hot potato games that were really playing. There was a certain section of like the NFT economy around, especially around profile photos, where like these profile photos or like avatars actually represented the ownership. Like it, it represented ownership of a, a certain community's collective identity, right? So I think like punks is definitely one, uh, Bored Apes, um, and other projects, right? Maybe, you know, they, they eventually become like, I think there's like a line between becoming established sort of community and being like this game of like, you know, uh, hot potato, but we sort of then sort of had this really interesting, yeah, uh, epiphany of like, hey, the, it's actually about like the, uh, is it online ownership here? Um, so, you know, I think that's our explanation of that. And, you know, 
but actually, yeah, we're quite excited by this revelation because it's like it's actually another take on identity that was, you know, uh, like completely different to like, I think a lot of people have tackled and try to solve, like, uh, understand what is identity from a very purely technical angle, like from standards angle. But right. you see, sort of see this as like, this is like identity being understood uh, from like a social angle, which makes a lot more sense, actually. Yeah, no, that, that, that you know, <laughs> You're seeing everybody buy like the pudgy penguins and you're seeing yeah. now uh, Budweiser buy like this rocket and beer.eth and you're seeing more of these like normie orgs step into the place and try to attach themselves to the culture of crypto, right? And think about that. A few years ago, crypto wasn't as cool as it is today. It's it's really become more of that cool kids club that normies want to be a, be a part of, right? Partly because there's the financial incentive of investing and watching your assets either appreciate or depreciate and the, the gambling that comes from that. And then it's also just like being a part of something new, this new revolution, this new form of identity, this new wave of ownership and what it means to kind of be a part of something that you can prove and that you can contribute to on the internet. I think it's one of the most beautiful things that I've come across to see all the, like, just like these PNG and JPEG revolutions and people buying gifts and Fidenzas and all these like cool, cool pieces of art. What are you guys looking at, at at 1KX? Are you guys investing in the profile pictures? Are you guys more on the equity investment side? What are you looking for? Yeah, we, we generally don't buy NFTs themselves individually as a fund. Um, you know, we try to look for as a general, you know, general sort of like strategy, we try to look for investments that really get uh, exposure across a broad area, right? Um, so we sort of look for index bets. Um, so we haven't, you know, really found it yet, at least for, avatar space but um i definitely agree with you uh, around that thesis is that like um at least early on in meta cartel when we created meta factory um you know the thesis for mass adoption was actually like it was our thesis then was actually like mass adoption was not um i guess you know even for further context there's a lot of discussion around like ux being the barrier for mass adoption and like and and you know your technology is like abstracting away crypto and we thought that was a part of the puzzle but our thesis for mass adoption was that it's actually going to happen crypto natively. Like it's sort of like hip hop, right? Hip hop was extremely niche, you know, created by um, really the black communities from like, let's say, you know, uh, you know, like New York, right? Like effect, like it really came from a place that was so niche, so unique, had such a unique sort of identity and that became cool. And others wanted to be part of that as opposed to they, you know, hip hop did not, you know, try to appeal to anything else. It yeah. was itself and it said, fuck you to everything else. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I think like Alpheus with Metafactors were exactly like, we want to actually like expose the coolest parts of web free, like digital ownership, DAOs, collecting NFTs, digital property rights, royalties, uh, you know, to the rest of the world. And we sort of started with like uh, digital physical clothing where like we had rare pieces of clothing with, uh, you know, where they were sort of attached with, uh, rare and collectible NFTs themselves, right? With an RFID uh, chip yeah. clothing. Yeah. Um, so this thesis is definitely sort of playing out where like mass adoption is actually happening for uh, like the crypto native side of things, you know, where, where, whereas a lot of people try to solve it. Like, how do we like do the same thing, you know, in Web2, but with Web3, you know, like, which weren't terribly too interesting, you know, like, yeah. What a great analogy. The comparison between the rise of, of hip hop to the rise of crypto. And I, I'll even argue that crypto is going to be bigger than hip hop in its own respectful way. 
Um, obviously, they're two different components, but yeah, what a good analogy to see the rise of something that was like so of a fuck you mentality. This is our culture. This is how we feel. Yeah. And this is how we express ourselves. And if you want to be a part of us, come join us, you know, our way. Basically, yeah. Crypto is very much that that level of mentality and that aggressiveness and that level of anarchy that you don't really see in any other space as of now. Um, so the, the projects that you guys are investing, okay, I know you, you mentioned about the intersection between DeFi and NFTs. Obviously, there's a lot of excitement right now. People are talking about that across crypto Twitter. What other use cases kind of get you fired up for NFTs beyond DeFi? Yeah, um, I think, uh, yeah, so aside from financialization, uh, like uh, NFT uh, financialization protocols, I think um, that, well, it's, we sort of see it as like, that's almost like the melting block, right? Between like um, all the creativity that spawns off digital assets and how they sort of become valuable or at least people, how people can extract value from that. Right. Um, yeah. I, I think like the use cases of that are less specific to products and technologies, but rather the fact that like NFTs and digital and the fact that like you can permissionlessly enter this like financial economy without needing to be over 18 and get, you know, and like, I remember when I was like 14 on the internet, like, I was trying to like freelance and do motion design, right? And I couldn't, I had to like get my parents to like sign up for a PayPal and then like, you know, uh, like get a PayPal. <laughs> like, I was like, I, I, you know, like the use case of like the NFTs, I feel like it's like you can create these financial assets, right? As a 13 year old or 12 year old and get into business like from day one, uh, if you wanted to, right? Like on a side chain. Um, and I think that's like this permissionless like economy is actually the key use case. We'll probably like, Leads to really cool things, I think. It's just like it's an entire platform itself, this yeah. existence of an economy. Yeah. One thing that I'm personally excited about is all these like future consumer applications that are going to kind of stem uh, from either the social side of NFTs or the marketplace side of NFTs or merely the portfolio management side of NFTs that we have yet to see. Right now, if you think about it, the current state of NFTs are. It's very much desktop driven, right? There is no real mobile marketplace yet that allows people to buy and sell stuff on the go. It's something that you have to access through your MetaMask wallet. And just the, the user flow is really messed up. And I know you mentioned it's not a UX thesis. It's more of a crypto native thesis, but I'd argue something different. I'd say actually a lot of people, they need to understand what a dumbed down version of this looks like. People kind of get overwhelmed still by MetaMask. People still kind of get overwhelmed by OpenSea and all the data and the, the, the search and basically finding alpha, understanding what JPEGs do I buy, how do I buy, et cetera. So something that I'm I'm personally excited about. Anything on your radar on that end? I, yeah, no, I definitely, I don't disagree. Like, I think that my point with the use cases was that, you know, uh, that, that thesis was that we really needed to like, this was, I guess the context was like 2019 and 18, right? Like we needed to solve use for exciting use cases first. And then once you've solved that, then the next like limiting factor was like user experience, right? Uh, and I think we're definitely at the point where like, I think the future social are like groups of people collecting NFTs together, right? Like uh, it's groups of people buying and trading NFTs from one another. It's, you know, it's creating NFTs together as a group, right? Uh, it's meeting one another in these like DAOs. And I think that slowly, maybe we don't call the, you know, call this sort of activity 
uh, DAOs or NFC collecting, who knows what the language and how we'll abstract it, but it'll sort of, I do think you'll look somewhat similar to this, right? And this is what, how, you know, people meet and, and, you know, connect with one another nowadays, right? At least in the future. Um, and yeah, I, I think that like with user experience, I think it's sort of like a matter of time before someone figures out how to take really the interesting bits of the crypto native and like bring it to the masses, right? And uh, maybe it happens from a top-down angle, like there's a Steve Jobs that invents like the product, or maybe there's no, uh, it, it's a much more decentralized approach where you just have different ecosystems, right? Um, that emerge and slowly mm -hmm. solve for like greater adoption, right? Because it's not like, boom, they like, you know, go from like zero to one, like, you know, zero to a million users, you're like overnight with the invention yeah. of like a yeah. better interface, right? It's yeah. what are you at? Like, we're, we're like growing our user base for generally web free and the NFC economy fairly quickly itself. So I think it's just like this expanding like bubble, <laughs> you know, no, yeah. no pun intended, uh, like that's just growing and growing yeah. uh, in width. Um, yeah. In my point of view, we're seeing the rise of all these different innovative protocols, whether they be curation protocols, proof of attendance protocols, uh, marketplace protocols for NFTs. And I think it'd be cool to see all these different like puzzle pieces kind of come together in a nice, I don't know, more mainstream type of way because users need curation. Users need to, to, to kind of create a diary of where they've attended and what they've attended, right? Users need a marketplace. And I think there's a beauty behind working in a decentralized fashion, bringing all these different puzzle pieces and making one one beautiful picture. We'll, we'll, we'll throw that out there. <laughs> I yeah, want to. Uh, my favorite. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, just to add to the puzzle analogy, my favorite analogy is like web free and crypto and DeFi and web free in general is like a huge Sudoku puzzle, right? And you're just like, you know, you're maybe like filling in boxes a bit blindly, and none of it might make too much sense until you like maybe you fill in the right box and suddenly you just unlock all these other like boxes, right? In the Sudoku puzzle that just suddenly become super, super like obvious, right? And I think like, you know, the lull and bear market we had in like, especially in DeFi, I think like in 2019, 18, it was like sort of the two boxes that we filled that like really unlocked everything were like lending markets and AMMs, like compound and Uniswap, right? And those two financial primitives unlocked like the rest of DeFi. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, and yeah. for NFTs, we're like, maybe with the with bringing uh, NFTs to the mass market, it's like NBA Top Shop proves that like people understand collectibles, right? It's like take NFTs. Big question was like, do people actually understand this? Okay, they brought it to the NBA like sort of collector at least uh, fan like you know the NBA. I don't know what you call this group of people who are like hardcore. Uh, they're the most know, active NBA, fans. Like, they're the most active yeah, fans. Exactly. You know, you have the people that watch yeah. on TV, and then you have the people that go and attend the the games, buy the jerseys, buy the cards, buy the branded cups. You know, and freaking yeah. paint their faces and shit. You know, and those are the most active fans. You're giving the more active fans a sense of community, a sense of ownership, and the things that they love and they support already. I wanna I wanna pivot into one final question, okay? And this is something that. I'm asking or I'm starting to ask everyone, at least on season two. Okay, so I'm a big fan of the development of the internet, specifically how the transition from internet web one, uh, then from internet web two and how kind of internet, uh, I guess web two, eight web one. So let's paint this picture. Web one was very much static, right? It was very much read only. You couldn't really do much other than kind of browse information in an unorganized fashion. Web two came around, you had more advanced products like Google, like Facebook, 
Instagram that created more UX UI layers on top of this scattered virtual world. Okay. You had companies like Uber, a lot of mainstream centralized corporations, and this whole rise of data control and data aggregation and what that entailed. And now we're seeing the development of what we like to call Web3, which is a decentralized version of social networks, decentralized ownership. Uh, and Web2 ate Web1, and the bet is that Web3 is going to eat Web2. What's going to eat Web3? Yeah, I have no clue. I thought about this before. Um, yeah, we're probably going to be like, you know, considered the next boomers by the time that really happens. And we're going to be like, most likely blind to, you know, uh, the next uh, wave of what happens, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a really good question. Um, you know, everyone be eventually becomes a dinosaur, you know, like, it's part of the cycle. Yeah, I think that's a good place to end off. <laughs> Everybody's yeah. becoming a dinosaur. Shout out to my dinosaurs. Uh, Peter, before I let you go, quickly plug yourself. Where can we find you, uh, 1KX, and everything that you're working on? Uh, Twitter is the best. Um, you know, my username, if you search it in, you'll find me easily. Uh, always available for DMs. Um, yeah. Amazing, dude. Thank you so much. And I, I kind of I hope to have you soon as 1KX develops and Medicartel and all these really cool pro projects that you're working on. So we'll be in touch. Thank you. Pleasure to have me on. Uh, thank